Psalm 22. Open up your Bibles to Psalm 22, and let's just take a, let's have a read here. Psalm 22. I was hoping it would get, you did 21. Well, if you're, uh, oh, after 21, yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, I was hoping that it would get a little more hopeful, and then we went back to Psalm 22. You've all heard this. I was going to invite Chuck Brown to come down and sing, you know, my God, my God, why you've heard this, right? Monday, Thursday. I thought it was funny. I told Bruzek we'd invite him, and he laughed, but nobody else down here laughed. Okay. It's a tough group, man. My, my, uh, my observation would be, when you think about the passion of Jesus, and we'll look at this in just a minute, one thing is, with all the other psalms, who do you think of first? And be honest, because now you may, this may not be the case. But when you first started reading the Psalms, who did you think of first, the psalmist or Jesus? The psalmist, right? Yeah. So you always think, oh, these are David's troubles. And it's sort of, in, a, in your minds at least, it's an illogical jump to say that this is Jesus. Now, when you read Psalm 22, who do you think of first, David or Jesus? Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? This is probably the one psalm that you don't think of the psalmist first. You think of Jesus first. And that's for obvious reasons. It's quoted all over the Gospels. And, of course, then on, on Holy Thursday, this is often what is sung or chanted as the altar is stripped, just as Christ was stripped, right? Um, but my observation would be, as far as the passion is concerned, one of two things happens. Either um, the passion becomes um, extraordinarily... Uh, well, I'll just read it to you. I'll read you Martin Luther, okay? I found this as I was walking down. I think the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. Um, the right way to think about Christ's passion. Okay, now this is from Luther. When we meditate on the passion of Christ the right way, we see Christ, we see Christ and are terrified at the sight. Our conscience sinks in despair. This feeling of terror needs to happen so that we fully realize how great the wrath of God is against sin and sinners. We understand this when we see how God sets sinners free only because his dearly beloved son, his only son, paid such a costly ransom for us. As Isaiah says, he was stricken for our transgressions. He was stricken for the transgressions of my people. My guess is you either see the passion of Christ and are terrified by it, or you see the passion of Christ and you glamorize it. Okay, And by that I mean you see it and sort of say, um, you know, maybe a, maybe a G-rated version of Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, right? You know, you know, I mean, I can remember as a kid, they always played the movies on TV, like uh, King of Kings. You've seen King of Kings, right? You see all these where sort of the passion is glamorized. You don't quite see the pain. And Mel Gibson did take a step in the right direction by showing you how painful it was. But my guess is it's one of those two things. Either you're terrified by the sight, or you find it, um, and when you see it, it's been glamorized. I want to put you right in the middle. And by that I mean, I want you to see how painful it is, um, but I want, I want you to see how it's driven by love. It's amazing. Someone I just read this morning, someone said, if love was simply an emotion, then what Jesus does on the cross isn't love. Think about that. If love is simply an emotion, how you feel, or give me what I want, then what Jesus does on the cross is not love. So as I'll say on Good Friday, salvation is not neat. <laughs> it's not neat, and neither is love. But love is always action, and primarily it's obedience. That's why uh, the close to the commandments, we talked about it at the joy group, the close to the commandments from Exodus 24 and 5 is, I will punish those who hate me to the third and fourth generation, and yet I will show mercy 
to those who love me and keep my commandments. Obedience, right? And that's in the context of the fourth commandment, which is the commandment all about obedience. Isn't that fascinating? So, Psalm 22, just what comes to mind as you hear this? And it's a long one, but just, you know, just give it a listen. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And art so far from saving me, from heeding my groans? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou dost not answer. In the night I cry, but get no respite. And yet thou art enthroned in holiness. Thou art he who praises, whose praises Israel sings. In thee our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and thou didst rescue them. Unto thee they cried and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not put to shame. And already you've got, you're very good at saving godly folks. Okay, so this is the setup for the big punch. But I am a worm and not a man, abused by all men, scorned by the people. All who see me jeer at me, make mouths at me, and wag their heads. He threw himself on the Lord for rescue. Let the Lord deliver him, for he holds him dear. But thou art he who drew me from the womb, who laid me at my mother's breast. Upon thee was I cast at birth. From my mother's womb thou hast been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and I have no helper. A herd of bulls surrounds me. Great bulls of Bashan beset me. Ravening and roaring lions open their mouths wide against me. My strength drains away like water, and all my bones are loose. My heart has turned to wax and melts within me. My mouth is dry as a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaw. I am laid low in the dust of death. The huntsmen are all about me. A band of ruffians rings me round, and they have hacked off my hands and my feet. I tell my tale of misery while they look on and gloat. They share out my garments among them and cast lots for my clothes. But do not remain so far away, O Lord. O my help, hasten to my aid. Deliver my very self from the sword, my precious life from the axe. Save me from the lion's mouth, my poor body from the horns of the wild ox. I will declare thy fame to, thy, to my brethren. I will praise thee in the midst of the assembly. Praise him, you who fear the Lord. All you sons of Jacob, do him honor. Stand in awe of him, all sons of Israel. For he has not scorned the downtrodden, nor shrunk in loathing from his plight nor hidden his face from them, but gave heed to him when he cried out. Thou dost inspire my praise in the full assembly, and I will pay my vows before all who fear thee. Let the humble eat and be satisfied. Think Eucharist there. Let those who seek the Lord praise him and be in good heart forever. Let all the ends of the earth remember and turn again to the Lord. Let all the families of the nations bow down before him. For kingly power belongs to the Lord, and dominion over the nations is his. How can those buried in the earth do him homage? How can those who go down to the grave bow before him? But I shall live for his sake. My posterity shall serve him. This shall be told of the Lord to future generations, and they shall justify him, declaring to a people yet unborn that this was his doing. Isn't that great? I mean, the best line, at least I think, is, for he has not scorned the downtrodden. Right? So here's what I want to do. Let's start at the end and work backwards. If we start at the beginning, we'll just be caught up in the passion of Christ. So let's start at the end, because the unique thing about the psalm is um, it begins with 
why have you forsaken me? It leads to his death and the, you know, the distribution of his garments. And then it ends with verse 22, I will declare thy fame to my brethren. And then, of course, um, I will pay my vows before all who fear thee. I shall live for his sake. So it ends with resurrection. Okay? So let's start there. What, uh, what do you hear in all of that? Do you hear anger? Do you hear hope? Do you hear love? What do you hear? They asked the preschoolers this week. They're talking about emotions. And uh, so they individually asked all the kids, you know, what's your, what, how are you feeling today? Which is, you know, sort of grates against me, but I get it. Uh, they asked Emma, how do you feel today? She said, I feel happy. They said, when do you feel happy? I feel happy when my daddy tells me he loves me. So now I know. I get inside information from the teacher. If I just tell her I love her, she's happy, right? See how easy that is? Until she realizes I'm just telling her I love her to make her happy, right? What comes to mind when you hear this? Well, start at the end. Start with the good stuff. Okay, fine. Let's start with the bad. (laughs) Yep. Okay, good. So, yeah, I suppose it depends on how your current life is. Um, not that your life is all, you know, a bed of roses, but um, if your current life has been a bit more miserable, you probably want to start at the end. <laughs> if your life's been okay, uh, you can sort of read through the beginning part and, and catch a glimpse of what the Lord's trying to do. Now, I agree with you. You don't get to... Yeah... Yeah, I suppose so. I, I'd be curious. You know, this is a this is a pastoral care thing. If I went to the hospital and someone was on their deathbed and felt utterly disowned by the Lord, would I read all of Psalm 22? Probably not. Yeah, they, someone someone could drop in the middle of this thing, right? Yeah, believe me, I've been there at someone's deathbed where you're reading and you're thinking they may not make it through this whole thing, right? So there is a sense of urgency, like let's get to the end, let's get to the good stuff, but. I see, and you're a different kind of cat. That's a different deal. I know. Beth, what do you think? Yeah. Yep. That's them. Right. Yeah. Well, and even and even the psalmist knows the answers. Remember, he starts with, you've done all this for your people before. Right? But there's a difference between knowing it and, and I don't want to say feeling it, but knowing it and being detached from what you know. Um, which ultimately finds expression in feeling it, right? So you don't feel that presence. Okay, good. What else comes to mind? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Good. Okay, so then, then a little, a little Christology because everything is Christology. How does your suffering um, compare to or relate with the sufferings of Jesus? Very small potatoes, right? Um, and why is it why is it small potatoes? How is your suffering different than Christ's suffering? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Now you got to push that further. So he doesn't just he does suffer for the whole world. Why does he suffer for the whole world? Keep going. 
Yes, keep going, but what causes his suffering? Not just his love. Yes. So on the cross, on the cross, is Jesus a sinner? Yes. Yes. On the cross, yes. Is he a sinner? Yes. In fact, one of the great heresies ever spoken in this place was a vicar who once said, Jesus bore our sin, he didn't become sin. Or he bore our sin but didn't make it his own. So somehow he's detached from your sin. Like, you know, you're an alcoholic, and yeah, he died for that, but he really didn't experience what that was like. Here's the thing. Yeah, when Jesus is on the cross, as Luther says, he is Maximus Peccator, which means he is the greatest sinner. So on the cross, Jesus, this is, this is why I tell the eighth grade, go home and try tonight, see if you can out-sin Jesus. You can't, although they enjoy trying. Uh, you can't. Yeah, some kids have come very, very close. Uh, but you can't because on the cross, Jesus doesn't only bear sin. He doesn't only um, die for your sin. He actually is accused as though those sins were his. That's a very different thing. Okay? So when he's on the cross, he's thinking to himself. Now, I, some of you are going to say, oh, no, he didn't think that. Yes, he's thinking to himself, gosh, I cheated on my spouse. I stole from the treasury. I was uh, an unfaithful tax collector. I did all these certain things. And he thinks all of that on the cross. That's why he can pray this psalm. So I just want to be careful that you don't read the psalm and sort of say, well, this is my story too. It is, um, but only to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why does why does Moses only see the backside of the father, only see the backside of the Lord? Cuz Moses is a sinner, right? And when sin comes in contact with holiness, someone's got to die. So who dies? Holy or unholy? The unholy dies. So Moses can't turn his whole face to the Lord cuz if he sees him, it'll utterly destroy him. That's why when he comes down off the mountain, he's got a beard. Holiness and unholiness, when you come in contact with that full blast, it does stuff to you. You know the, how many of you have seen The Exorcist? One person. Parts, yeah. Okay, so if you've, ever seen, if you've ever seen The Exorcist, go home and watch it tonight. The Strutzels have a big party on their big TV. You can watch The Exorcist. You know, that story um, began, the real story began at the St. Louis Seminary. Do you know that? Yeah, I know. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm glad I'm a graduate of Fort Wayne. Uh, the St. Louis Seminary, apparently, the boy in the story was a boy, right? Well, it was a girl in the movie. I think it was a boy in the real story. Um, the boy was a Lutheran. Now, there are many reasons that he may have had a demon. Um, I would never attribute it, that to him being a Lutheran. But uh, he had a demon, and the Lutheran pastors couldn't get it out. So who do you call when you can't get a demon out? Yeah, you hate the Catholics for everything else, but when you need a demon out... You call the Catholics, right? So they call the Catholic priest, who does have an exorcist, um, and the Catholic priest was about 26, came over, drove the demon out, stayed up all night trying to drive this demon out. And now, partly, you guys think, ah, does that really happen? Is it, I, you know, I just drove by a house I, I'd been at about a year and a half ago where the mirror was talking to the family, okay? So you walk into that, and I can remember walking into this house where the mirror had been talking to the family, and... Um, it was utter chaos when I sort of went inside. St. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, says that demonic possession or presence is animalistic. You know, animals just kind of go crazy. I can remember walking in. Of course, the vicar, vicar, don't ever do this. The vicar who was the vicar, I took him with me because you never go to an exorcism alone. 
And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to stand outside and I'm going to anoint the door frame with oil and, and say, depart thou unclean spirit, make room for the Holy Spirit. Then we're going to go in. What, what does the vicar do? We get all vested. We light the incense. We get the crucifix. Get up to the door. What does the vicar do? Walks right freaking in the house. There's, I mean, there's a demon in here. And he just walks in like it's no big deal. I'm like, you just failed. So, uh, but we walked inside and the dog is going crazy in the crate. You know, like when your dog wakes up and has to go to the bathroom and it starts shaking? It was doing that, but kind of going up and down, too. We went into all the rooms, sent the demons out, put oil on the, frame, on, the, on the mirror that was speaking. Then I can remember we went to the Eucharist. It was on a table like this. We had the Eucharist in the kitchen. That's where you're supposed to end. We had the Eucharist in the kitchen, and I can remember the fan above was spinning so quickly that the table started to shake as I'm celebrating the Eucharist. And when I got to took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, take, eat, the whole room just calmed down. The fans sort of slowed down. The table sort of sat down. That's real live stuff. Well, anyway, this priest goes and does this exorcism, and uh, the next day he wakes up and his hair is completely gray. He's 26. I've had mornings like that too. So, uh, but why does that happen? Because he comes in contact with something that's utterly unholy. It's the same thing with coming in, some, in contact with something that's utterly holy. It changes, you know, your appearance. So um, partly the reason why he's so forsaken on the cross is he is so utterly unholy. You ever felt something? I mean, have you ever sinned sort of, uh, had a great sin or maybe a terrible thought about someone and you almost feel dirty after it? It's like walking into a used car shop, you feel dirty, you know? I'm serious. You ever, I mean, you talk to, you talk to people who have had affairs or who, I mean, pick your thing, or done drugs or whatever, especially sort of sexual sins. But they're engaged in that, and after it happens, they almost feel dirty, like they've got to go and shower. That's the problem. He is so utterly unclean that the Father actually can't bear to look at it. So you think the Father has trouble looking at you? Imagine all your sins plus all the sins of all the world of all time embodied by one person on a cross. That's what the Father has to look at. I mean, that's an amazing, that's an amazing thought. Um, and that's part of the reason why he's so utterly forsaken. So I want you to be thinking about how he is so distinct from you. And yet, <laughs> your sins contributed to that. So you do have a share in that. Okay? Um, what's his reaction on the cross? When you hear Jesus say, why have you forsaken me? What does that sound like? I mean, what is, what's going on in his head? What's he thinking at that point? Gosh, I hope this ends. I wish I never would have done this. I'm angry that the Father made me do this. What's he thinking at that point? Yeah. Yep. Feels like hell. Yeah, I, good. You know, darkness, falling, and snakes are the three things people are most afraid of, and there's a reason for that. The angel, of course, falls from heaven. And there's something when Jesus is so sinful that it feels like falling. That's probably true. Although the hell one is interesting, too. Um, usually where I'm very good is when people are either dying or, I'm going to say have just died. It's easy to be good with someone who's just died because they can't respond. But they're family. I'm very good in those situations. And I remember going across the street, the vicar was with me, for the guy who had been murdered. I told you about this a couple months ago. The guy had been beaten to death, and then I tried to burn him, and I did his funeral across the street. But I remember what his mom said to me when I walked in. I said, I'm so very sorry. Um, 
I, don't, I can't even imagine what you're going through. The worst thing you can say is, I know exactly how you feel. They're like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, I mean, what? So I said, I can't imagine what you're going through. I said, but I'm very sorry. And her words to me were, this is hell. That's all she said the whole day. And there's something to that, both being forsaken by your father and in some sense um, losing a child. You know, it, that's absolute hell. That relationship is so deep that when it's broken, it feels like hell. But what's his reaction? It feels like hell, but what does he do? Think about the crucifixion now. We're getting toward, you know, toward Holy Week. What does he do in the midst of all of this? Because there, yeah, he forgives. Because there are one of two reactions. This is your friend or your foe thing, right? What are his possibilities as he hangs on the cross? Yes, he could, right? Yeah, remember he says, I have the power to call down legions of angels. Um, but what are, so he can damn them. And if he's damning them, what would that be? Would that be anger or love? Anger, right? It would be anger. Because at this point, he's not the sinless son of God who, you know, you sort of say, oh, he can do anything he wants and it's pure and it's right and it's holy. He is a sinner. So if he is a sinner, damns other people to hell, that is utter anger. What's his other possibility? He can love them, okay? And I think that's very important. Flip your, I gave you this with the Bible verse on one side. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Flip it over, the bottom quote there from Ladder of Divine Ascent. Um, you know, it's been funny to me over the past couple weeks. Well, let me tell you this before I... Um, on Sunday in the sermon, you're going to have a period on everything that happened before. Okay, So I can tell you this, while at some point we may reference our past in order to get better... Um, we are not going back. We're done, period. So something in the first, you know, near the beginning of the sermon will say something like, it's time for the period. It's not, a, it's not a comma, it's not a semicolon, and it's certainly not an exclamation point. It's a period. Boom, we're done. We're going forward now. And part of that is because the gospel reading for Sunday is the prodigal son. Remember, the son has the big plan to come back and make amends with his dad. And what does his dad do? He won't let him. He puts a period on his confession. No going back, we're all going forward now. So what I'm going to say is, not trying to go back, it's actually trying to go forward and get better. Part of what we struggled with, I think, is anger. And unfortunately, you know, you've done the circle of anger, you've done all that stuff. I showed you how to get out of that. Unfortunately, as with all things, two or three months uh, go by where everything sort of lays low, and then what happens again? It springs up a bit. And why is that? Because people see this is their last chance to get what they want, right? And we can fall into that too. Same thing. Pastors, congregation members, good folks, folks who are caught up in sin, pick your thing. But I've tried mightily myself over the past week to not be angry, and that's a very difficult thing. In fact, I've, I've got a thing on my computer that says silence, because sometimes the only way to not be angry is to not speak. Because if you speak, who knows what you're going to say. Yeah, exactly. Sort of replay the whole thing. But I was, I've got this by my computer. I've had this there for eight months. And I sat down this morning before the Eucharist to pray, and I look up, and it's there, and I'm like, whoa, that's good. I hadn't seen this in a while. Right there. So just look at this thing from Ladder of Divine Ascent, and now think about Christ on the cross. Anger is a dislike hatched from the memory of, a set of offenses received. So someone's done something to you, you remember it, and then what happens? You get angry. A desire to hurt the people who have hurt us. Now, Christ could very easily have, been, have, have acted that way. They're nailing him to the cross. He could very easily have been angry with that. 
The sweet scent of humility, however, makes it disappear as the darkness scatters when the sun rises. And you have there the image of the crucifixion. It's darkness and then it's light. Some people with a hot temper do not worry about it and ignore the remedies that would heal them. People just sort of pop off. They forget, unfortunately, what is written. Surely anger kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. Anger is like a rapid revolution of the mill wheel. It not only crushes, but also scatters more grain than a reaper could do working a whole day. It is also like an outbreak of fire when the wind is blustery. It scorches and burns up the field of the heart more disastrously than a slow fire would in a long period. You know when they light fires to put other fires out? You see how it catches fire and takes off like that? It's what anger's like. The hot-tempered individual is like an epidemic. The disease takes him by surprise, shakes him up, flings him to the right and to the left. That's demonic. He needs a great deal of humility because his anger is the result of an overinflated opinion of himself. Okay? I confess. That happens to all of us, right? Overinflated opinion of himself. Why is he doing that to me? But listen to the last paragraph. On the other hand, gentleness attains its highest expression when we keep our heart calm in the face of someone who is provoking us and actually show him our love. Isn't that brilliant? And when you read that, what comes to mind? What should come to mind is the crucifixion of Jesus. They walk by and they wag their heads at me. They shake their tongues at me. They say, let his father save him. That's what he always told us. And what does Jesus do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Okay? So love is always action. His chief act of love is to be crucified. But even in the midst of being crucified, he loves in utter humility. You're doing this to me, and yet... You're provoking me. What they want him to do, what do they want him to do on the cross? They'd love for him to do what? Come down. Because then they can say, see, this guy was a goof the whole time. All he can do is work miracles. He's probably working for this God or that God or this God. They want him to come down, and what does he not do? He doesn't come down. And in not coming down, he actually loves him. Okay? So if you want to find your place in the story, find your place there, not necessarily as the great sinner. Okay? You all okay? I mean, you tracking this? Did you get one? Is there an extra one? Extra couple? All right, so what else? What else do you hear in the psalm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Exactly right. Yeah, that was good. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's Charles Wesley who wrote the hymn. Jeez. Um, oh, yep, exactly. What's what's uh, low? He comes with clouds descending. Gaze we on those glorious scars. That's Advent. Advent. Yeah. So at, yeah, at Advent you're about to have him drop down in flesh, and you're singing about his crucifixion. So even today, this is why Lutherans are not afraid to talk in terms of sacrifice, because even today, Jesus stands before the Father. It's as though, um, you know, it's as though the Father continues to look at his sinful creation, and what he, what he expects to see is what he saw when Jesus was dying. What he sees is Christ standing right in the way, holding his hands up, saying, it's all taken care of. That's why in the Old Testament, remember the Ark of the Covenant? They had the two angels with their hands down, and what do they put in the bowl? 
the blood so that when the Lord looked inside the ark, he wouldn't see the law. He wouldn't see how his people had transgressed. What he'd see is the blood that was sacrificed. So what he always sees is the son bearing his scars. And you're right, the place of healing for you, the place of moving forward is to find your place in those scars. That's why when he appears to Thomas, what does he say? Put your hand here, right? Um, so you've got to find the place where Jesus gives his body again. That's the place where you can find your, you know, your own location within the scars. But that's moving forward. A Jesus without scars is a Jesus who didn't die, which means you can't move forward. It's like a blue-eyed Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it does appear that oh, as though he's innocent. Um, well, yeah, it, I mean, as Luther says, see, part of the trouble is figuring out Christology can be very difficult. Um, but Luther says he begins to bear the sins of the entire world at his baptism. So for the last three years of his life, if you read Luther's baptismal, the sermons for the baptism of our Lord, he sort of says, Jesus is baptized. We often say, oh, he sanctifies the water. Yeah, he does, because holiness touches something that's unholy and makes it holy. But he also comes out of the water, and who does he stand right next to? Sinners. So as Luther says, he lines himself up with sinners and makes himself to stand as one of them. So for the last three years of his life, he is beginning to bear the sins of the world. He is, though, um, in who he was created, well, in who he was begotten by his father to be, the second person of the Trinity, he's utterly innocent. He doesn't deserve it. But when that, when that divine nature connects itself to Mary's womb, suddenly he bears all that that's got. And I would say even on the cross, part of his crying out is because he's so utterly guilty. So he, that's part of the reason why he says, you've got to imagine, if he felt as though he was innocent, would he have led the psalm by saying, you helped all these other sinners before. Why aren't you helping me? I mean, because when he talks about Israel, he's talking about sinners. They're out in the desert, and they hit a rock and get water, right? So when he says, you've helped all these people, he's not saying you helped perfect people. You helped all these damn sinners, and here I am, and you won't help me. So in some sense, he does sound innocent, but I think that actually highlights his sinfulness because he compares himself to other sinners before. Keep going. You all okay? I think you've asked this question once before, haven't you? I don't know. I think you have. Keep going. Don't. Here's the thing. As I told someone who was someone during my, uh, I know I am. As I, as I, as someone said to the bishop, if you want to listen to what we say, you can just go listen to it on the radio. People take frivolous notes. I can remember during a sermon once, someone, my wife sat sort of two or three rows behind him, and they were taking frivolous notes, had them sort of all spread out. Same thing when I teach Bible study, and I'm sure the same thing for Bruzek. And, um, you know, if their kids are in confirmation, I'm sure their kids do the same thing with your husband. Yeah. But what I want to say is, you can just go listen to it on the radio. I mean, you don't have to take all the notes. <laughs> don't spend your, at least listen to what I'm saying. Then if it's heresy, just go send the DVD or the CD to the bishop. Um, There is for you as an American. There isn't if you're a first century Jew. Because they understood their existence to be so connected 
to what they did and, 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 and their outward action. So for a Jew, and for, frankly, anybody in like the Eastern Church today, if you talk to your Orthodox friends, they would say their existence, who they are, he became sin, is always connected to what they do. You and I see, maybe not you and I, but Americans especially see, I can do whatever I want, but that doesn't mean it changes who I am. It's part of the problem with Lutherans and like forensic justification. You sort of say, I'm forgiven, now I can live however I want. Guess what? How you live affects who you are. And Jesus as a Jew would have understood that. If he says, I've become sin, that means he has sinned or has sinned. And if he bears our sins, that means he becomes sin. So there really is no gap between those two things. He is what he does, and he does what he is. So if he says, I become sin, that means he sinned. He's perfect until he gets to the cross. Yeah. Yes. Until he gets to the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, he certainly sets the stage in his three-year earthly ministry, but it's not until he gets to the cross that those become his. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, that That is true um, until he finally expires on the cross. That's why at the Good Friday liturgy, um, you should, your pastor should, when it says he gives up the ghost, what should he do at that point? Do you remember? Have you ever seen this? Go down on one knee. Because that's the moment of the great exchange. Okay? So here you are, all your sins, and here's Christ on the cross. When he gives up the spirit, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what happens? All sin is fully and finally his, and all divine Life is fully and finally yours. Now, the only way you can have these sins back is if you don't give them to them. That's the only way your sins are yours. We'd be in a perfect world if people just wouldn't give up, if people just give up all their sin. So, on the cross, the great exchange occurs. You say, Jesus, take all of this, and Jesus says, great, all I've got is divinity. All i got is divine life. You can have all of that. At that moment, it's Eden again. But what happens? The people who wag their tongues, the people who shake their heads, they're not willing to give them all up. So the only way you can have these sins back and not fully enjoy the divine life is if you won't give them to Jesus. Because he doesn't force you to do anything, including give, you, give him your sins. Yeah, it's like when people say to me, I know I've been forgiven, but I can't forgive myself. Now, I'm going to say something, and I don't mean this applies to you, but I'll say something about those sorts of people. If you say, I can't forgive myself, guess what? You're your own idol. It's like when, and I know this is, this is hard, but it's like when you lose a child and people say, I'll never forgive the Lord for doing that. Well, then your child becomes an idol. Whatever stands in the way of you being forgiven is in actuality an idol. So the way you get free of that, the way you come free of that is to be in a place where you're constantly being forgiven. Uh, my wife's aunt uh, was murdered at the age of like 22. Raped and murdered. Lived in Texas, was a cheerleader, was sort of a big deal. People came in because she lived with two other guys. They were coming in to get the other guys because it was a drug deal gone bad. They raped her and murdered her. 
Now her grandparents finally are beginning to get over the, the hate and the anger of that. But guess what, the, guess what the medicine is to get through that? Go to the Eucharist. And I know that sounds too simple, but it's not. You go to the Eucharist because until you're constantly forgiven, you'll never learn to forgive anybody else, including yourself. So if you say, I got all this guilt, I just can't get, come free of that, go to the place where you're forgiven, and maybe you'll learn how to forgive yourself. Now that's a lifetime activity. That could take you 40 years, or it could take you two weeks. But if you go there and say, Lord, I got even this guilt of myself that I'd done all these things in the past, I'm going to give it all to you, give me all you got as second person of the Trinity, fully divine and fully human, perfect now, at the right hand of the Father, show me your wounds. If he gives you that, you might just come free of your guilt. So place him on Jesus. Even today, he wants to receive your sin. Place him on Jesus and take what he's got. I wish I could give you, like, you know, a 12-step process because it would sound more legit. Uh, but it's not. Go to the Eucharist. And then read all these passages where Jesus says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, don't feel guilty. It's all going to be okay. Guilt is terrible. It ruins people. It just ruins people. And I don't mean feel like you have license to do whatever you want. But guilt is, boy, guilt is a terrible, terrible thing. Yes. Yep, you're not fully free of all that until you see the Lord face to face and you can actually touch his wounds again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that would be nice if you did. You could, you could hope for that, but chances are you're not going to get all the way there. Right? And the, and the sign that this is happening, real honestly, well, just flip your... Uh, Flip your page over, a reading from Romans 6. This was this morning. I was struck as I read it. Look at verse 20. 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, so that's before Jesus died for you, or before you were baptized, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, or for which you feel guilty? So these people in Romans... You know, they're sleeping with the next-door neighbor, they're doing drugs, they're stealing money. He says, yeah, you were free, but what, I mean, what did he say? But what fruit did you get from that? Maybe someone got pregnant, maybe you got a disease, maybe somebody killed you because you stole their money. There's really no fruit in that. You should be ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Now think of Jesus on the cross. What's his lot? Death. If anyone has to feel ashamed, it should be Jesus. But now that you have been set free from sin, so this is you, Donna, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's holiness. That's doing good works. And its end, eternal life. So don't ever let a Lutheran tell you again that what you do doesn't lead to your eternal life. Guess what? It does. How you live your life matters. Because it's fruit of being forgiven. So the Lord forgives you on the cross. He gives you his fruit. What's his fruit? What's the fruit of that tree? His body and his blood. And he says, now live a sanctified life, and that will lead you to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The way you know, Donna, that someone's moving in the right direction is they live a life of good works. And that should be, and I, I can't quite can't quite get 
the joy group to figure that out. And I don't know why, but they should be the most charitable people in this congregation. Many of them are, but just like everybody else, there's some that just don't do anything. And part of the fruit of being forgiven, I mean, her life is spent half the year someplace else helping people. That's how every person in their 60s, 70s, and 80s should be. Because why? They've had the Eucharist for that long. I know there are life circumstances you can't, I get all that. But to see how people take the Eucharist for years and years and years and it doesn't make a darn difference in their life, that's when you can see that they're still caught up in guilt and shame. The more you receive Christ, the more he says you should receive his fruit, and the more you receive his fruit, the more sanctified you should be, and all of that leads to eternal life. Now, part of the problem is that, uh, as one joy grouper said to me, the law is whatever we do. The gospel is whatever Jesus does. That is so utterly upside down. The only time what you do becomes the law is if you think what you're doing actually saves you. If you say, Jesus doesn't need to die for my sins, I can take care of that on my own. And so I said to this person, when your son comes home for Christmas and says, give me a hug, Mom, is that law or gospel? Guess what she said? Law. I said, well, don't tell your son that, right? Take, eat, this is my body. Law or gospel, you're doing something. Law. Oh, it's the gospel. So part of it is remembering that what you do matters, and guess what, that's a gift. Okay? Part of the struggle that we have as Lutherans um, who are so intent on being by saved, saved by grace alone is we think saved by grace alone is the last word. It's the first word. You're saved, now live this life. Yep. Yeah, me either. Yeah. Completely agree. In the immortal words of Ray Newberg, may his soul rest in peace, Ray Newberg sat down at the end of the hallway. He must have died about a year ago. Right before he died, he sat down at the end of the hallway and said, I never thought we should have the Eucharist every day. But since we've had it every day and every week for him, he said, this congregation has gone like this. So he grew up once a month, twice a year. That's... And that's precisely the reason they did it so infrequently. So it would have the impact. So you'd look forward to it. I mean, do you go out with your husband for dinner once a year? I do, because you don't have any money. But do you? <laughs> no, okay, but bad example. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Yeah, I mean, let's be realistic, okay? What great things in life do you do once a year because you want to enjoy them? Eat steak have sex. You do any of that just once a year? Come on now. But we say of the Eucharist, one time a year so we enjoy it. Maybe you'll enjoy it more if you have it every day. Right? So it's completely upside down. But I think you're right actually now that you say it. That's part of the trouble is people went for 30 years of their life having it five times a year. Then they had it maybe twice a month. Then they had it once a weekend. Now it's every day. I'd be anxious to know what Someone like Emma or the Strutzel kids or Audrey or any of these kids who are coming to the Eucharist now, what they're like in 80 years, if they have it every day or every week. And I'm not saying that they're going to be more holy than other people. I just mean I wonder what their lives look like at that time. And we'll never know because I'll be dead by then. But 
how will, how will the church as a whole be different than it is today? Maybe we'll be more engaged in acts of mercy. I was stunned to read in the Lutheran Reporter yesterday, they had a whole symposium at St. Louis on non-white Lutheran ministry. They said 95% of the Missouri Senate is white. There's, is, at this whole symposium, they probably had 200 people there, one black person was a voting member at the next synodical convention. Now my question is, why are we a church that one, has to have a symposium like that, and two, still thinks, even if you all don't, that there is some distinction between black folks and white folks? Guess what will solve that? The Eucharist, drinking from the same cup, eating the same bread. That'll change people. I'm going on and on, hoping to avoid your question, but your hand is still up. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's always continued in the Roman church, because um, in Acts it says, don't give up daily meeting together for prayers and the breaking of bread. So don't give up daily going to the Eucharist. Um, and I think also, you know, the Lutherans were intent on, I just read it this morning from the Lutheran Confessions, where it says, we do not want to dispose of the Mass. They call it the Mass. We don't want to dispose of the Mass or anything it gives except for the few things we had disagreements on. So even the early Lutherans had it probably every day. I think when it disappeared um, was when you had Zwingli and Calvin and some of the evangelicals who took the body out of the Eucharist, because then why do you need it? If the body and blood aren't there, what's the big deal with having it once a month? And about the same time, the body came off the corpus. So then you had a bare cross, roughly the same time, which is a striking thing. They took the body out of the Eucharist, and they took the body off the corpus at about the same time. So if it's just bread and wine, there's no urgency. If it's body and blood, I want to have it all the time. Yeah. I think they did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that does have a connection, yeah. What else? Well, given all of that, flip your page back over. And I'm just curious if you can pray this prayer. I'm just curious if you can pray this prayer. So what you've heard about the passion, what you've heard about the great exchange, what you've heard about the Eucharist, can you pray this prayer? Lord Jesus, I desire to receive you into my heart. Through this union with you, I offer myself to the Heavenly Father as a sacrificial host, abandoning myself totally and completely to the most merciful and holy will of my God. From today onward, your will, Lord, is my food. Take my whole being, dispose of me as you please. Whatever your fatherly hand gives me, I will accept with surrender, peace, and joy. I fear nothing, no matter what, no matter in what direction you lead me. I no longer fear any of your inspirations, nor do I probe anxiously to see where they will lead me. Lead me, O Lord, along whatever road you please. I have placed all my trust in your will, which is for me love and mercy itself. Can you pray that prayer? Just curious. You okay with it? Anything jump out at you and say, oh gosh, I can't pray that? Yeah? What, what was wrong with that? Yeah, okay, good. Now maybe think in these terms before you get the Lutheran, you know, the Lutheran fence up. When you receive the body and blood, 
bodies and bloods you and actually sends you out as one who embodies body and blood. So it's like you're a host, you're a living host. Yes, exactly right. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay, good. Okay, so maybe that's difficult. Sacrificial host, that can be difficult. Although, if you understand sacrifice as, um, you know, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me, might make it a bit easier to swallow. Okay? Or if you understand sacrifice as the sanctified life, as St. Paul said. Anything else jump out at you? Yes, right. Yeah, okay, good. This is this is very striking to me because I this is I get no I get it I get it um, it's a very strange thing I gave this to the new members when we finished up the Eucharist section I said how many of you could pray this prayer every hand in the room went up including which was strange all the old Lutherans in the group there aren't that many but um, and I said what problems do you have with this they said the only problem is we don't think we can actually do it. That's our only problem. We just don't think we can live up to this. So maybe here, maybe here, um, you know, I desire to receive you into my heart. Don't hear that necessarily like an altar call. Maybe hear that as I desire that what you give me at the altar remains in me always. That sort of thing. Okay? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we pray all the time, grant us your Holy Spirit once more. And so a good Lutheran would say, well, why do we need it again? We've already got it once. Well, because, you know, sometimes you turn away from the Holy Spirit a little bit. And sometimes, yeah, exactly. I need it all the time, right? What else? Anything else jump out at you? Yep. Yes, exactly. Basically what you're saying is... um, no man will be my enemy. I will love, and I will do precisely what you ask me to do. Yes, exactly. Because if you're anxious, what does that mean? You're afraid. And if you're afraid, you're thinking about yourself. And if you're thinking about yourself, you're an idol. You're an idol. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Glad I made that point clear. Uh, anything else in this that jump out, jumps out at you? I would encourage you, and I know it says at the bottom, Blessed Faustina, and you're all going to go home and Google her and say, oh, she's a Roman Catholic blessed. But I would encourage you, cut that part off and don't ever think about it again, and pray this. Because what this shows is that every day, even if you don't have the Eucharist, this is back to your point, you want to be one with Christ. And you are. But it's like telling your spouse you love them. You know they love you. But guess what? It helps when you say it and when you hear it. Okay? So it's like Emma. Does Emma know I love her? Yeah, because I buy food and put it on the table, and I let her play soccer, and I do all that kind of stuff. But when I say to her, I love you, what does she say? It makes me happy. Okay? So pray this and remind yourself every day that Christ loves you. How does he love you? Psalm 22. He becomes sin. He bears the sins of the entire world and is forsaken by the Father, so you don't have to be. Got it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I can I can give you like a 20-second thing. I think any inspiration, well, inspiration is different than heartburn. How's that? Period. Okay? All the, you have many friends who say, oh, I felt, I, I can remember this. 
the first, um, I preached Christmas Day as a vicar, and one of the higher-ups in the synod was here, and he said to me after the sermon, I loved it, and in the middle my heart was strangely warmed. You remember who said that when he converted? John Wesley. What was he reading? Do you remember? Luther. <laughs> John Wesley was reading Luther, and he said, as I read Luther's commentary, I think on Galatians, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. Now, is that emotion or action? Primarily, it's emotion. So the Lord's inspiration are not like heartburn. You don't just say, oh, geez, I think I feel something. Isn't this, which is sometimes what your own imagination is like. It's sort of, it's, it's driven by sometimes anger, sometimes hope, sometimes loneliness, sometimes fear. It can be driven by whatever you feel at the day. You know, you wake up sometimes in the middle of the night, and whatever you're thinking or whatever you're dreaming about is what you thought about right before you went to bed. Same thing with your own imagination. So that can't drive you. The Lord's inspiration comes to you only where he's promised to give it in his scriptures, in preaching, at the Eucharist, in absolution, at baptism. Now, two of those are a little more difficult to find inspiration in, the Eucharist and baptism, because he doesn't quite say anything. But in preaching, he says something. In absolution, oftentimes he'll say something. And in, uh, and in his own word, he says something. Now, I would just caution everybody, don't go home and start reading the scriptures and saying, I can figure this out on my own. Part of, part of the struggle with everybody being able to read the scriptures for themselves is you could have 40 different interpretations. This is why Jesus puts prophets in place, and this is why in the early church, frankly, people didn't read the scriptures. Where did they get the scriptures? They went to church where someone told them what the scriptures mean. So if you want to find inspiration, go to where the Lord's promised to give it and talk to the Lord's man who has been given, who has been called and put to give you those inspirations. And that's a, that's a very different thing than your evangelical friends. Because your evangelical friends don't have the ministry like you do. And so, who's a minister? Everybody is. And if everybody is, this is the great heresy sometimes at St. John. When Don't ever come to me and say, I can read the Bible just as good as you can. Now, you may be very good at reading the Bible, but if you've not been given to do that in the same way that I have. Just like... I wouldn't come to you and say, I can spark computer wires just as good as you can. I can. I can spark anything. But not like you. So it's all about going to the place where the Lord promises to give his gifts. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, that is, um, that's very true. That's why, you know, every heresy has a bit of truth in it. So if you sort of dabble around in the water a bit, you might get something that people buy into. It may not be right, though. Everybody okay? What do you want to do next week? By the way, just so you don't ask, I did get a haircut. <laughs> Everybody said, I, once, I finally just told someone, no, I didn't get a haircut. Why? Does it look funny? I had Maria, who is, well, I think she's from Venezuela. And she said to me, I have a grandson named Josh. And then she said, my daughter's name is Abigail. I said, oh, my wife's name is Abigail. And then she had someone else, in her, Jose, in her family. I said, I don't have any Jose in my family. But she told me her life story like the other woman did. And just the only problem is she kept cutting as she was telling my life. Like, my daughter, her husband divorced her, and they don't go to church. And then she said, my car is going to break down. Will you pray for it? I said, is there a patron saint for cars? I don't know. I said, well, I'll throw one up for you. And then she, and I get out to my car, and I look in the mirror. I'm like, man. Talk about the price of pastoral care. Look at that. 
So thankfully, it'll grow quickly. Um, well, thank you very much. My wife likes it. She doesn't like it long anyway, so who cares? You know, it's just my goal in life is to make her happy. And if it's things like this, I know. What? No, I know. It's not, yeah, it's not like your husband likes it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. All right, here we go. Let's, uh, if you get a psalm, email me, call me. If not, we'll just plan something, okay? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.